I've been thinking about entanglement. I know I, I mentioned that I would talk about the hindrances and start a series on that. And I'm actually not sure if this these reflections I'm going to share are going to qualify as as the reflections on the the hindrance of sensual desire, but it might it might turn out that way. So we'll see. There are a couple of things that have been um, coming sort of across my uh, awareness. I, mean, I guess I'd rather say that than across my desk, like you know we we would have in the back in the old days. But um, to really consider the ways in which we're entangled and what that means uh, when we think about the hindrance of sensual desire or any of the hindrances, it's really, of course, mostly about what happens when you sit down to meditate. You know, how, how does it go? Can you reflect on, you know, afterwards, you know, what's actually happening in meditation? And maybe even during meditation, you can be well aware that one of the hindrances is there blocking the way to really deep, contented immersion. And when we when I really think about, you know, what are what are the hindrances? There are ways in which we are entangled in the world. I mean, there's something there that we're not yet letting go of that would allow us, if we could let go of it, to really settle into a peaceful state without any disturbance. So there have been a couple of ways in which the idea of entanglement has come up recently for, for me. And one of them uh, you might think is a little unusual, but I've been exposed to the idea of um, quantum entanglement. It's actually called that. And I don't know if you have much experience or any interest or any exposure at all to quantum physics, and I'm far and away not, not an expert on quantum physics or even close to it. You can barely spell it. But it's like, you know, this idea of these very small particles, subatomic particles, actually, and this, um, some of the the technology that's being created based on this theory or this kind of discovery of the way subatomic particles behave is quite impressive. And there's an idea or a theory of quantum entanglement, they call it. And in very simple terms, what it is is that there can be two subatomic particles that are somehow intimately linked to each other. And even if they're separated literally by billions of light years of space, when one is affected by a change, the other one also instantaneously, simultaneously changes in the same way. And this is an incredibly mind-boggling, counterintuitive kind of um, thing to have happen. And uh, it makes one wonder um, about the nature of, you know, how things are connected in, in reality, in the world, in um, samsara. <laughs> and, um, you know, just just what it could mean to have that kind of connection over vast separation of space. So Albert Einstein uh, thought that this wasn't possible, really. Uh, when it was when the theory was presented to him, he's, he he had uh, proven that information can't travel faster than the speed of light. 
So he called this spooky action at a distance. And it's um, interesting to think at a very, you know, kind of simplistic level in my case, that's the only way I can approach physics <laughs> and is that the world just isn't what we think. And it, there's so much there uh, that's um, not as reality presents itself to us ordinarily. And that's one part. And also the particles that, that they're talking about aren't really, they don't really appear like matter until you observe them. They're just kind of fuzzy waves until you observe them and then they become solid particles. So it's, it's like, okay, the universe isn't the way we think it is. And I think this is really, this is really something to understand from the Dhamma that the way we see things, the way we experience things is not really um, based on truth or reality. And the Buddha kept trying to get us to understand the way things actually are. You know, that, that there isn't any solidity in the objects or um, in the objects in our material world, but also in, in anything else that we might consider to be me or mine. And so when, when I think about entanglement, it's really another way from my perspective of talking about attachment. But if we think about, you know, how is this um, affecting me, this being attached or entangled with the things that keep me from actually being content, happy, at ease? And what do we do about it? Because we live in the world and we have uh, responsibilities and constraints and possessions and relationships and phenomena that affect us, whether it's the weather, the climate change, war, um, you know, every different kind of thing you hear on the news or our relationships and the changes we find in our own bodies all of these things that affect us. So what is the Buddha recommending? He wants us to know how to disentangle ourselves. How do we, how do we be present with what's happening and take care of things as is appropriate without the emotional impact that entanglement brings and that's really the question so when we sit down to meditate and then we don't we wouldn't have this kind of pulling the mind away or holding the mind back from being completely able to let go and 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 let the meditation process take over We wouldn't, we wouldn't have the fear and the resistance to allowing that to happen. And we wouldn't, wouldn't be uh, inhibited by drowsiness and dullness and restlessness and regret and doubt. So all of these things that the Buddha identified as the, the things that, that weaken wisdom, the things that kind of get in the way or obstruct our progress. They're really based in attachment. And, you know, that was apparent from the, from the noble truths. And so looking at, well, what's the alternative? How do we live in this world and take care of what we need to take care of and care about each other and care about what's happening without this weight on our hearts? without this oppression that we can experience. So I think it's useful to look at examples. 
And and an interesting one came up for me this week with regard to actually I was doing some um, exploration because I'm scheduled to give a talk in a in about three weeks for Seattle University. And it's it's for the their Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement. And there's they're, they're doing this series on Buddhism this this academic year. And there's been one talk already. And I'm giving the second one, and then there'll be a third one. And I'm going to put the link to this talk in the chat, see mm -hmm. if I can manage that. Um, it was given by Reverend Imanika, Im, Im, no, Imanika, I think is how his name is pronounced. I'm going to put that in the chat here. And his, he's, um, he's a reverend. He's a Japanese priest in this uh, Seattle um, temple. And he talked about how Buddhism is known to be peaceful. And yet many of our teachers, including the Buddha, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, and Many others have been deeply touched by war. And how does one relate to that? Engage in a way that's positive and helpful? Keep the precepts of not killing and, and um, speaking against killing? And, and to take care of the heart. So I found his talk very interesting and touching and it made me wonder because there are some concepts there from this um, kind of strain of Buddhism in Japan that's actually Vajrayana which is kind of interesting so from the Tibetan tradition where there are some concepts that are used that don't show up in early Buddhism like oneness and the Buddha didn't talk about us all being one, um, you know, that kind of thing. Buddha nature, the Buddha didn't use that language either. But how do, how do we as human beings engage in the world and still, you know, follow the Buddha's guidance on being somehow aloof from the world. You know, it's it's really an interesting question. And Venerable Imanaka, Imanaka brought up some of the real um, challenges with, with this. And when I think about you know, what do we do? So let's just start with something. The simplest thing we could start with is physical possessions. So um, we've all probably gone through periods where we purge the things that we have. And we can, we can assign a kind of emotional value to things. For example... <laughs> This last week, um, we've been making some changes at the Hermitage, and I there there was a, a vase that had belonged to my grandmother that I still had, and had it at the Hermitage. It was sitting in the shrine room, hmm. and I remember it from <clears throat> excuse me. I remember it from childhood and my mother had it. And when she died, excuse me, when she passed away here in California, 
I brought the things from her place that I thought would be useful at the hermitage. And I happened to keep this vase that she had put some silk flowers in. And it was sitting there. And what was really interesting about this vase is that it was already broken. You know, you have Ajahn Chah's like, you know, do you see the crack in this cup? And, you know, the, the difference between the person who's, you know, a, a noble disciple or an ordinary person is you, you know, the cup is already broken. Well, this vase had been broken and glued together. So it's never going to hold water. <laughs> and it's still in my life. You know, it's like, why? You know, it's like there's this emotional kind of value that we attach to objects. Who owned them, where they came from, how long they've been in the family, and so on. By the way, the, the vase went to the garbage. Um, and it's it's like, how can we re-condition um, the mind to let go of these things that we create attachments around. And I think it's important that we don't, we don't force ourselves too much, but we force ourselves enough to see what's really, um, what do we really need and what's really useful in our life? Like someone recently wrote, you know, is it okay to have comfort? I mean, Ajahn Gana was telling me, let go of comfort, let go of comfort. You need to let go of comfort. And that was shortly before we were offered the hermitage property, as some of you might know. And I thought, well, this is this was a great lead up because it's just not comfortable oftentimes at the hermitage. And yet we need enough comfort to support the body, to be comfortable in meditation, support the mind so we're not worried about things. And there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. And yet sometimes if we push ourselves outside our comfort zone a bit, then we learn that, oh, I thought I had to have things a certain way, and I really don't. And this is a very freeing experience. So, you know, whatever we think we have to have, or we're not going to be okay, we could try a little of letting that go for a while and see, do I really need that? Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm going to be okay anyway. And in the end, we're going to have to be okay without anything. So it's kind of like helping ourselves find that that right amount, that balance that's important to help the mind disentangle. And yet enough support that we can be at ease enough to practice and feel solid. And, and, and of course, what's necessary is the bringing in of the Dhamma. So when I think about, I certainly don't need this face. You know, it's, it's not like my grandmother is somehow still with me because I have this vase. You know? And it's also the case that it's kind of a burden. Did anybody ever give you an heirloom in your family? And it just is kind of a burden. You know, you've got to like protect something. You could like, we don't have to protect anything. Everything here is going to fall apart. And, and when we start to think about what else we're entangled in, you know, we, the Buddha praised um, maintaining favorable relationships relationships with friends and family and caring for people. But can we do it from that place of compassion and kindness without so much attachment? This is kind of the thing. It's and, and So look for ways in your own experience where you find yourself taking care of things, but not invested in it having to go a certain way not requiring um, that it that it that this is what you are dependent on for your support and well-being. If that makes any sense, it's like it's like seeing that you can care about someone and you can completely let go of whatever decisions they make, the way they operate in their life, or whether or not they live or die. This is, this is really the, the 
progress of the practice where you love without that attachment and that your, your solidity comes from the Dhamma, your solid ground comes from wisdom. So these hindrances are these kind of manifestations of entanglement. And when we, and they weaken wisdom, and when we strengthen wisdom, mm-hmm. these, these entanglements start to disentangle. And, and we f- can find that something simple like whether or not to, to eat meat. So there's discussion came up last weekend with someone. And it's like knowing if meat is necessary, useful, beneficial for the support of the body, then how much, and it's like Ajahn, Ajahn Ganha and Ajahn Cha, from what I've heard, have both talked about this. It's like this, um, this image that the Buddha gave of how to relate to food. Sorry, this is kind of graphic. Some of you know this story from the suttas, is this couple is going through the desert with their only son, their child, and he dies. And in order to survive, they dry the meat from his body and they eat it. And the whole time they're wailing and crying, where's our son? Where's our son? So they, you know, it's like he said, that's the way you need to look upon food. You just eat it because you need it. And any animal is like your own child. That's pretty intense. (laughs) How can we eat some meat that we need? And this is what I think is important, that if the body needs it, that you know it needs it for its sustenance. It needs it for its health. It's not about, oh, I want this taste. This is where we start to see the, the distinction, where we can do what we need to do without guilt, without remorse, because we know why we're doing it. We know what we are, what is what is useful and what is acceptable and what and have the care and the kindness and the wisdom around it. So that what we choose to do has an integrity in it, but not an attachment. That the selfishness is dissolved from our experience. And this is a tall, tall order. And it is exactly what's needed for awakening. And it's exactly what happens as the result of awakening. And it's it's interesting to find that approach to these things that comes from um, a, a wisdom that allows us to do it as we're ready that the amount of of forcing is not overly demanding, if you know what I mean. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, This is kind of a ramble. (laughs) But it's like, it's it's looking for what's, what's really going on in your mind when you sit down to meditate. You know, what is it we're holding on to? The most, it can be the most subtle things, some sense of self. What we're really entangled in is our identity. You know, who do we think we are? And what is it that we think we have? And what is it that we, what is it that we want? And, and all of those questions are crucial to the to the point of like when i sit down to meditate i start to get relaxed we start to get still somehow we just can't go any further that blockage there's something we're holding on to there's something we're identifying with there's something we think we need that we can let go of because what lies beyond that is seeing reality for what it really is. I think the Buddha probably understood quantum physics. (laughs) What is this universe? 
what is the nature of human existence? How do we deal with things like war and climate change? How do we, how do we engage in supporting what's wholesome and good and helpful and kind without getting pulled into it, down by it? So the answer, of course, is we follow the Noble Eightfold Path and we really investigate in ourselves. For each of us, it's going to be a bit of a different story. We're all in different situations. We have different, you know, kind of um, conditions for the mind that currently appears. And to be able to really investigate that with a kind of raw honesty that says, I'm willing to see the truth regardless of what it's going to shatter in my life, in my, in my image of the world and image of myself. If we're really willing to take that step, we can see a lot. And it helps us bit by bit disentangle. And then in the process, if what seems to be happening is kind of a, a loss of interest or a loss of, in, you know, kind of real caring, then we got to stop and back up because that's not how the process should work. What should happen is more, more kindness naturally springing up in us, more caring, more compassion, but without the attachment. So I feel like as we look at the hindrances, this is our job. It's more than identifying, okay, this is what sensual desire is, and this is the ways in which it manifests, and this is the, the extreme, like, overwhelming lust, and this is the subtle, you know, like, I got to have my coffee or my A2 yogurt or whatever it is. You know, it's like to really see the deeper ways that we want sense input for comfort and stability. And it's completely unreliable that what we want, what we want to do is shore up the spiritual energy, joy, peace, the wisdom that helps us see the truth so that those that input from the senses is not so important. It's good for information. It's good for informing us how to take care of our body, our mind, and the people around us. And the world. That's it. It doesn't give us happiness that lasts or peace of mind that's stable. And so it's like, what a challenge. Here we are with these senses, and this is how we know the world. And we have to become much more skilled at how to use that than we could have imagined before knowing the Dhamma. And we can. And some of you are. I know you are. Uh, maybe you all are. And so this is the this is the ground of our exploration of the hindrances, I think. <laughs> and having said that, I'm really interested in hearing what you think. So thanks for listening. Yes, Neil. Um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why I was so eager to put my hand up because my thoughts are all over the place right now. Um, I feel like a lot of what you said gets at the crux of what I what for me is the crux of the practice, and I I thought of it in terms of the I've thought of it in terms of the Brahma Viharas, like to to sort of strive to achieve those states without attachment 
that seems very critical to me. Mm -hmm. But I never, I hadn't really thought of the, the hindrances as involving attachment, which seems kind of odd as you were talking. I'm thinking, well, yeah, of course they do. Um, I mean, obviously, desire is an attachment. Aversion is an attachment. But I guess in in meditation practice for me over the years, the big one was always sloth and torpor. And I'm not sure where the attachment, what the attachment is in that particular hindrance. I mean, I guess it's kind of an aversion in a way. And so I guess that was the main question I wanted to ask was, can, and maybe you're going to get to this when you focus on sloth and torpor, but I'm wondering if you had an example of what what is the, uh, the, the danger or it, the attachment danger in sloth and torpor as a hindrance? Okay. Um, I, and I feel like that's such a specific question considering where my mind is right now about everything you've just said. Um, but that's the specific question I've been able to focus on in the last 20 minutes anyway. If that makes any sense at all. It does. It does. And I'm glad that the, all the other background things will continue, but the specific question is a good one because as you pointed out, it's much easier to see with sensual desire and with ill will. But with sloth and torpor, like when does it happen? It's like, okay, first thing we always have to look at is, am I really tired? <laughs> um, and if we know that that's not the problem, that I have to have a rest, then what is it? Why does the mind go dull when I want to sit to meditate? Well, there's something there. There's something I'm clinging to. There's something I'm attached to. There's something I'm entangled with. And I've seen it a lot of times when people are unhappy. You know, you... You're living in a monastery. Maybe you're living in a monastery with a great teacher that you really admire. And somehow when you sit to meditate, you just zone out, float, float around. Why is that? Maybe you're not as happy as you hoped you would be. Maybe that external experience isn't really giving you what you feel you need. And there's something we got to go deeper somehow to understand why the mind wants to shut down or go foggy. And, you know, it's not easy breaking through. Otherwise, we'd have arahants all over the place. It's not easy to break through and, and answer this kind of question, but we have to. We have to figure out why. And the Buddha talks about this in the suttas. You know, like when he talked with Anuruddha and, and um, Nandiya and Kimbala, about meditation and they said, yeah, we see forms, but then they disappear. He said, you have to find out why they're disappearing. You have to look at the conditions of the mind. What is it that's going on that I'm not really like so interested and alive to be in meditation? And yeah, we will talk more about this and I have no idea what I'll say when the time comes, <laughs> but, but you know, yeah, exactly. There is something there that we're bound up with. And it's not like we, you know, it's not like attachments and entanglements just happen so consciously. They're very unconscious. We come into life with a bunch of them already. And, and there's they've been laid in with conditions from the time we were born. You know, the anyway, you get it. This is this is a real, this is a real sleuthing project. <laughs> we have really, really taken interest in understanding this mind that you have. Thank you for the question, Neil. Yes, Virginia. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're bringing this particular thing up um, because whatever it is that you just said is really the forefront of my life problem right now. <laughs> And maybe that's the point, right? Um, for me, this is so tied up in my elementary school teaching that I am struggling with on a level right now um, that it, it feels really, really deep. I think it's so, it's 
it's a really vulnerable place for me. And at the same time, so there's like an openness and a um, a real love and care, like what you were talking about. And it's and it feels very natural. And at the same time, it is so caught up in my identity and my goals that I've made and, you know, my vision of society and all the problems and et cetera. Um, and I have just been like beating my, my head against the wall this particular school year so far um, to the point where I've really come to the decision that I just need to leave the teaching world at least for quite a long time. Um, but what I've started to do, because I've just barely started to really see like, okay, on an intellectual line, an intellectual level, I knew that this was a Dhamma thing. <laughs> and now I'm slowly starting to, it's starting to come into my heart that that's what this is. And um, I'm starting to just get to the point where rather than um, reacting to things not going the way I want them to go or the way that I feel like they ought to go, just feeling it instead of doing mm -hmm. something about it. <laughs> it's, like, it's very humbling. Um, but when I'm able to do that, it hurts so bad. And so I'm kind of like, okay, this is the feeling of attachment and entanglement. I'm feeling it. I know that it's suffering. And so I'm hoping that I'm going to learn from that. <laughs> so that's, yeah. thank you for listening. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you have spiritual friends that you can talk to and maybe get a hug from and whatever is needed? Um, I do. And it is, these sentiments are so shared by teachers, any teacher I've ever met. And so there's a very strong community feeling there. Um, although very rarely is there a Dhamma aspect to it. So I have other friends that are my Dharma friends and it's, I've never had the two worlds kind of come together in that way. Oh. Well, may they, may they come together because in so many ways, um, even though our stories are different, our circumstances are different, it, it, when it's distilled down, it comes to the same problems. And that's what the Buddha was saying. And it, it's amazing to me when I read the suttas and I see how people were struggling and suffering then and we still are in the same ways. And so... It is it is wonderful to have people from, you know, having a similar situation. Like you said, you're, a, you know, teaching is, wow, it's such a challenge. And we do have um, a teacher or two online here, I know, um, besides you. And I, I do hope that as a community, we can do more with each other, uh, even online. Um, that's something else we'll talk about uh, that's that's coming in and which is this idea of uh, accountability partners and you know uh, ways of relying on each other but anyway i i really um, want to support you in that process and if there's anything we can do let us know yeah and i i like your idea of of instead of reacting, because one of the thoughts that came as you were talking was, yeah, don't make any rash decisions. Um, you know, like really being present with what it feels like is is the key. And it 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 makes it possible to navigate the rest of life, which is all going to be changing as long as we're in these bodies. And it's always, um, you know, that whatever's coming around the corner might really benefit from the practice you're doing now with this and to develop your own you know, inner stability and, and understanding of truth. So it's beautiful.
thinking. Denny? <clears throat> Thanks for your talk. I, I, I feel it did have sort of sometimes feel like this sort of rambling thing, but then it kind of, it helped me in that it just made me think more about <clears throat> what I want to say. And I, I feel nervous saying this. I, so over the last week, I've just been meditating more, uh, listening more. And every time I meditate, I think like, oh my gosh, what is, what's going on? I, no matter what my intention is, it feels as though I'm pulled away very quickly to old hurts or old. And I, and I found that uh, once in a while, I, I come sort of come out of my breath and I just, I, I ask Jesus for help. I say, please help me, Jesus. And it's just this thing that I, I was raised Catholic, mm -hmm. uh, very steeped in it. And, uh, and I catch myself and I feel like I shouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. I should, uh, I sh or if I do say it, I should say it in Pali. And, <laughs> and, and I feel like I don't kind of belong here sometimes because I feel like, uh, and I find it comforting and uh but i feel just there's a there's a somewhat some shame here right now that that i would say that that i would look for that kind of help and um but i'm just trying to figure out how to get what's really blocking me what is it that keeps pulling me away from being here and uh i think part of it is just like afraid to talk like this, afraid to be, to really look at what is there. And that's what's there. So I just wonder if you have any thoughts. I do. <laughs> First of all, don't ever be ashamed of calling on Jesus or anybody else who might be up there or out there. <laughs> it's like, that's okay. <laughs> um, I really mean that. I mean, I grew up also in a, in a Christian environment and I think really based on what I read and what I see that, that the Buddha taught, there's no reason to think that all of the the Christians that I grew up around and um, that are in the town I lived in and all of that aren't going to go to heaven and be with Jesus just like they think as long as they've been virtuous. And I feel confident that devas give us help and uh, heavenly beings can support us and they do. Ajahn Panyawada, when I was visiting him, he's the British monk who lived with Ajahn Mahabua for like 40 years when he was amazing. And um, he said, when you ask the devas for help, if, if you don't really need it, they don't usually show up, but if you need it, they'll show up. <laughs> And that's kind of been what I think I experienced too. And so no shame needed. And I think it'd be better for all of us if we have an open mind and an open heart to people with other beliefs. And just because we don't all have the same kind of information, um, it doesn't matter. We're all working with the same spiritual material, really. Um I do think the Buddha was, as Ajahn Pamali says, the greatest spiritual mind ever in all of human history. And I'm grateful that we have his teachings. And, you know, Jesus only taught for three years and they don't really have a lot to go on, but it's been enough to fuel a lot of good action. And of course, we find bad action in every, every part of human existence too, but we have to notice that we all share defilements as well as good qualities and that's all our job and sort that out so please don't ever feel ashamed of that and yeah so i think of course you're right we look we have to look deeply at what it is we're we're clinging to and and you know every time the me and the mind shows up we suffer so if I'm suffering, yeah, I've got some identification going on and, you know, like, what's that about? And can I let it go? 
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Kimitana. Thank you for your talk today. I, I really appreciated it. Um, one thing about quantum uh, physics that some people might find interesting is that everything is mostly empty. It's all mostly empty space. Mm -hmm. um, that has kind of blown my mind a little bit. But anyway, um, I wanted to share something a little bit personal, and I hope you don't mind, um, regarding attachment. Um, I have this, this mind, my particular attachment that I've been really working with. Oh gosh, for about the last couple months, it's been gender. Um, I, I find that uh, I stopped hormone therapy, um, you know, for, for health reasons. And I've also noticed that there was this attachment to, to take in that stuff, that, that this, this taking this meant that, that I was this person, that, that, that I was this particular gender. And I, I let that, I, I've noticed that anyway, um, I'm sorry, my head's a little mixed up. Um, I'm still working through a cold. Anyway, um, so I, I quit that stuff. Um, uh, and I've, I've noticed my mind, um, you know, really attaching to these conventions, that these conventions mean identity, that I'm attached to these identities. It's kind of this weird kind of feedback loop. And, and it's like, why, why am I attached to these conventions? Why am I attached to this, this, uh, uh, this identity? Um, and, and then there's, there's some, uh, there's some uh, adverse, I'm adverse to being, think of my, thinking of myself as male. It's like, why, why am I so adverse to this idea? And, uh, and, and one thing I, you know, um, and there's some fear, like, like, what am, what am I, what am I afraid of? Like, what, what's going on here at a deeper level? And I think what it is, is that I'm afraid that, that if I consider myself male, that that means I'm going to be my father. And then I, I will, that means that I have to behave in a certain way. And it's like, where, where do I get, where does this idea come from? This is complete nonsense. I have proven to myself that that's not true. That that you know I am a good person. This, where where does this where do these ideas come from? And I noticed that, you know, just sitting here looking out the window or doing whatever, that the this attachment to these conventions keep coming up over and over again. And I'm I'm looking at I'm watching these happen in my mind, and I'm like that this is not self. This is not. This is not. It's not real. It's just an idea. It's an attachment to conventions. Yeah. And uh, and I think this is my theory that the reason it keeps coming up again and again and again is that uh, that there's something else going on. There's something that I don't know yet that I can't see. I'm not sure yet. Mm -hmm. That's why it keeps coming up. But anyway. Um, uh, another thing that, that I noticed when I was taking off from San Jose, though, getting up into the air, it was really bumpy. And, uh, man, a plane jerked one time, and everybody screamed, you know. And, and uh, I, I was watching the sphere in my mind. And it's like it was like I was just clinging on to the, the sphere like, like I was supposed to be feeling this right now. It's like, well, what, what would happen if I just let the sphere go? Mm. And I, I felt pretty peaceful my it, it you know the mind kept clinging to it again and again and again it's like like gotta let this go let, let's just let it be uh it, it's it's progress but it's like i noticed like there was this thing that that i was clinging to this fear like i was almost supposed to be afraid but i didn't have i don't have to be afraid mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know anyway uh, thank you for listening and thank you for all for being here well thank you so much for sharing that I mean, it makes so much sense to me. I mean, we have all this conditioning and we keep coming back to it because that's the basis we've been given for how we make sense of ourselves and the world. And then we come in touch with the Dhamma and we see that it's just, that's, it's, it's full of flaws, this whole idea. And it's really not the way we were told it is. 
and shown that it is, you know, like we, of course, we, we grow up, we, we, first of all, we come into this world with who knows what from past lives, and then we grow up with these particular people in our world, and we develop all these ideas very naturally, like we don't have anything else to base our understanding on until we start to, you know, really find a basis in Dhamma. When Dhamma is everywhere, I talked a minute ago about different faiths, there's Dhamma to some degree um, everywhere. It's all, it's available for everyone to see. It's just hard to see because of all these, like you said, conventions that are, that are overlaid in the mind. But of course, that's, that's how, that's what ha we have in order to survive. So we come back to it over and over again. And I think the work that you're doing is wonderful and amazing. And this is exactly what's needed. And as many times as it comes up, that's as many times as we have to confront it. And we can do it and it will lose its power. So thanks for sharing that and thanks for doing that work. Thank you, Aya. Look. Sarah? Thank you, Aya. Um, during your talk, you had you said one thing that really um, uh, caught my attention. You said, if you find yourself not caring or unkind, you've got to back up. And um, I'm visiting with my mom for a couple of months before uh, moving to the monastery in Canmore and um, starting more seriously on the monastic path. And um, it's been a strange time because myself and my mom are recognizing uh, to what point I, to use a harsh language, um, don't care about certain things or um, have really completely lost interest in a lot of things and um, not in a forced way, but uh, that's just what's happened. And um, I think I'm noticing it makes people very uncomfortable when we kind of in a way reject everything that they, they do care about and they that makes them happy. Um, and so I guess I was just wondering if you had some thoughts about that maybe a natural process of dispassion as we mm -hmm. um, slowly walk the path and how to, um, you know, kind of, maneuver through that with the people who we care about who who don't quite um who have to adjust to these new tendencies yes thank you for that question sarah it's first thing to know for you and your mom and your family is it's just a phase um, that's what got me through raising teenagers. It's just a phase. <laughs> but it's a phase in a special way because um, there is a kind of period of rejection of those things that you mentioned. And I'll tell you that, I mean, some of you know this story already, so forgive me, but there was a point where I realized that family is suffering. Now, this is in the context of, you know, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering. All of these things are suffering. I was looking at the world from this perspective of the three characteristics. It's all impermanent, it's falling apart. There's dukkha in it all. There's, there's non-self. There's no self in any of it. And this examination of, you know, like investigation of what is there, what is the suffering of birth, et cetera. And you, Sarah, have you heard my fish tank story? If that does not ring a bell. So 
I was married. So my husband was really into tropical, having a tropical fish tank. And he was always kind of having to do something with the fish tank. Like, you know, of course he'd clean it every week and he had fish that would be fighting and he'd have to separate them or he'd have one that would get sick and he'd create a hospital tank and he'd put it in there and it, and then one fish would get too big and he'd, for the tank he'd take it back to the fish store and it's always just messing around and and it's fine I mean I didn't I'm I'm supportive of what you know it's a kind of wholesome no problem kind of thing to be doing but in my reflections about you know like why what do we why do we spend time on things why do we put energy into things that you know, are inherently dukkha. Anyway, the reflection, I'm standing at the kitchen sink washing dishes and I'm thinking about fish tanks being suffering. And, and what led up to it was I was on my way to a Baigiri. I've been spending, I had been spending a couple days there frequently and I was on my way out and um, and it was so shortly before that that my husband said to me, Wow, the, right now the fish tank is perfect. It's got four fish. They're all different. They're all beautiful. They're just, they're getting along and nobody's sick and it's just perfect. And I thought, oh no, I know what comes next. <laughs> and yeah, by the next morning before I was leaving, one of the fish had gotten sick and died. He just saw it. It's just laying on the water, you know, and it's like, okay. By the time I got back from Obayagiri, two other fish had died, and the last one was really in horrible shape. And, and I just thought, yeah, fish tanks are suffering. You know, the benefit is you sit and watch the fish, and then is this worth it? You know? And the next thought was family is suffering. And something shifted in my mind. I mean, shifted in my whole being. And then um, I would think about my children and I would think about the, the snails on the sidewalk and they, I had the same feeling for them all. And I was, I knew that this was a breakthrough, but what has to happen then after that kind of breakthrough is to come to a place where the metta and the karuna take over. You still have the equanimity, but it, it, you relearn how to be with your family because you have this beautiful connection with people, these particular people. And and in a way, you have a special past to be in their lives for their transitions in life and for all of the, and you have a special kind of opportunity to support them and help them that you don't have with other people. And regardless of how equanimous we become and how disentangled we become, we have this opportunity and this connection and the opportunity to really to love them in a much more deep and full and selfless way without attachment. So this rejection of the things that they care about is a phase. The rejection of wanting to be close is a phase because this new closeness without the attachment is so much more beneficial for everyone. It's like, yeah, my granddaughter um, had a burst appendix. A lot of you know this last last spring, and I'm driving over to take care of my grandson and kind of support my daughter, who's kind of beside herself. And you know, there's not sure Ella's going to live, you know, and all that. And and it's it's like the thought in my mind is okay. The most important thing here is for me to take care of Lucas and to support my daughter because this is going to be really hard for her. And I love my granddaughter, but she's going to die. Not necessarily. And she didn't. She's still alive. She came through that okay. But she's going to die at some point. And when you know that, when you really get that, then 
there isn't so much entanglement. Although I've noticed I can build it up. I can build up the attachment again and see it and dissolve it. So what you're going through now is a phase. You can take interest in what they do. You can take interest in how they feel. You can be there with them with a heart just overflowing with metta and compassion and joy for their goodness. And that's the next phase. Don't worry, mom, she loves you. And she appreciates all that you've done for her. And you're not gonna lose her. And that's how it is with the world too. You know, you talk about war and we want to support everybody, both sides. May they all find a way to be happy and peaceful. May they all be safe. Yes, Satina. Hi, everyone. Satina here. Thank you so much, everybody who has shared, uh, especially to Sarah and her mom who has come before me. It's actually given me the courage to share as well. Um, I will soon be reunited with my mom because um, the uh, I'm Chinese, Chinese American, but the Chinese Lunar New Year is coming up. And I, mm. I, I'm, I'm from um, New York City. I, I'm living in California right now. So, and um, I haven't seen them in a year and they miss me and they want me to to visit with them. So I said, yes. Um, but over the past week, I think I've been processing um, kind of just what you've been talking about, Ayasantusika, how to um, how to reform that relationship. And as I'm processing that, I'm noticing through this processing of entanglements and attachments and identity is, um, is the process of grief. And I didn't know that was the name for it yeah. until I was in meditation. I was like, oh, because um, the, my relation, uh, my relationship with my mom, and I know this is universal, universal to anyone's, they're fortunate enough to have a deep relationship as a young child to their caregiver is um it feels very like low in the brainstem mm -hmm. so to speak feels very so it's so tender i think i i am trying i don't know if i'm so so um i think you kind of touched at this too like how so how do we go about disentangling that and and i think i will remember what you mentioned about going kindly into that and 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 watching being being aware of when it's too much but but how to the, the comfort zone around that um so yeah i think that's all i have to share thank you so much yeah thank you Sadia. <laughs> we have to we have to find ways to support ourselves through the transition between being entangled and being unentangled. You know, we have to give ourselves enough space and time and support and, and be careful not to be harsh and not to lash out at anyone, you know, to really, really try to keep our side of the street clean you might say no regrets that way and then, and then if we do that happens too and then we come back to ourselves and um, make amends and start over and that's that's okay that's how we learn and to not and to not carry regrets and to not carry any kind of grudge or or uh, aversion to others and that's all a process. It's all a phase. We're in a phase. I think some of these phases might last for lifetimes. 
Fortunately, everybody here has been exposed to the Dhamma. So you've got this opportunity to really, to really make progress, to end this phase, <laughs> this phase of suffering and attachment. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful to do this work and to support each other in doing this work. Yeah. Thank you for sharing everyone. I'm glancing at the time, got three minutes. Good luck naming this talk today. <laughs> I'll be interested to see what happens. <laughs> anyway, I hope um, I hope everyone can hold this in the right balance. Um, seeing that it is a it is a messy territory, and it's a real challenge to navigate it for all of us, for everyone. And we can do it. It's doable. And always reflect on your progress and the encouragement of the good examples that you see around you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.